think whether it's traditional social networks like Twitter to kind of tools like Tweet to Speak or things like YouTube videos, it is just kind of level the playing field in everyone's voice. Even you with your podcast, you know, you you have a voice because of technology. You can reach people all over the world with your ideas because of technology. And I think that level playing field makes it completely unpredictable, but kind of exciting around what the ideas will come. Visionaries, welcome back to another episode. I'm your host, Rebecca Walcott. In this episode, we're joined by the VP of Global Marketing at Google, Marvin Chow. Marvin is a 10-year Google veteran and self-proclaimed nomad, dreamer, and curious creator. Prior to Google, Marvin worked in marketing at Nickelodeon, Reebok, and MVP.com, a startup founded by Michael Jordan and John Elway. Currently, Marvin is focused on using tech, like artificial intelligence, as a force for good. In this episode, we really get to know the real Marvin and dive into his driving purpose as a leader and visionary. We also get real on his marketing strategies at Google during the pandemic, what success embodies to him, and what he's most excited for this year. I absolutely love chatting with Marvin. He's an incredible person with a very unique vision and perspective that really excites me to reimagine life. And I hope you enjoy this conversation just as much as I did. So let's get started. You credit so much of your career towards being curious and self-motivated. In a short summary, as short as possible, can you tell me what led you to Google in 2010? Sure, yeah. Short's not my expertise, but thank you, Rebecca, for the confidence. I think, you know, I was working at Nike at the time in 2009 when Google called, and I thought it was silly. Like, why would I work at Google? And the more... I met people at Google, and the more I really looked at where people, and particularly youth, were spending more and more of their time, digital technology was on the rise. And I think, you know, Twitter was new, Facebook was new, YouTube was new. And being in China, I got a glimpse of, you know, the, the, their, their parallels like Yuku and Ren Ren and, and Baidu, what they, how people would interact with them. And I really just believe that this, that technology was going to be such a pivotal centerpiece to everyone's life. And I kind of made, at the time, a risky move to go to Google. Looking back, it totally made sense. But at the time, it was kind of a big risk for me. And so that's kind of what drew me there, just the, the unbridled curiosity of, well, what if this happens? And that's really funny. That was your response because that was leading up to my next question. I know you are really active on Twitter and you tweeted talking about, you know, the crazy situation with the stock market and, you know, with Google Trends, how that sort of helps us relate to current events going on across the world and it's so relevant and it was kind of funny because you're like so many people are tweeting like what the heck is a shorting stock and I was like I I am that person (laughs) but I'd love to know from you you know from your experience at Google especially now what are some of the main experiences you you've had and 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 main realities you've had where you've seen the internet create social change sparking from digital communities you know, I mean, so I mean, there's so many examples so broadly around how the web has changed 
and created movements and changed marketing. I mean, even back to the earliest days, I literally remember getting ready for the 2006 World Cup, which I believe was in Africa, right? 2006. South Africa. Yeah. And as we were preparing, we had all these plans and all these thinkings. And then a year before 2006, this little startup called YouTube popped up and changed everything. It changed how everybody viewed the the World Cup that year and no one predicted it. And no one can understand, no marketing person could have understood or predicted how it would have changed how people experience live sports. I think when you look at 2011 with the Arab Spring, you know, when they shut off Twitter, I think some engineers at Google invented tweet to speak where people could like tweet something and they would turn it into like a voicemail file that you could then share. So really it's less about, you know, the traditional social network of connecting people, but I think technology time and time again has proven to be like a voice and an amplifier of what people think. And, you know, and now with misinformation in good and bad ways, but I think whether it's traditional social networks like Twitter to kind of tools like tweet to speak or things like YouTube videos, it is just kind of leveled the playing field in everyone's voice. Even you with your podcast, you know, you, you have a voice because of technology. You can reach people all over the world with your ideas because of technology. And I think that level playing field makes it completely unpredictable, but kind of exciting around what the ideas will come. And that's kind of the byproduct of, you know, the Wall Street bets, Reddit thread, and, you know, some of the things that they think about, you know, and, you know, it becomes a convening factor. They've gotten a lot of people asking, what is, what is, you know, short squeeze, what is short stocking, what is a short stock? And I think that's a different kind of, kind of, kind of community of people who are curious about that. So going off of that, this was just a side note that I was really curious to talk to you about because, you know, starting off at my old company as an assistant, I didn't really have that much of an interaction with people on the C-suite level. And then I read this incredible article that you wrote for Vast Company talking about the impact your five summer interns had. And I was, to be honest, pretty blown away by the fact that you had learned so much from interns considering where you are as an executive and in the best way possible I would just like to say that this is not normal and I would love to know (laughs) I would really love to know you you mentioned that they had a participate don't anticipate attitude and they didn't allow anxiety or inexperience to impede you said on the ambition to contribute and learn so I'd love to know as an executive, is it a mission that you have to be connected with your team, no matter their level in their career? Yeah, no, I think, I mean, what I think, thank you for that. I mean, I think definitely being connected to the team, you know, I mean, it's physically hard. Nowadays, it's physically hard. I think as the team grows and scales, it's of course hard. It's one of the things that I lament that I don't get to, to be as connected with a majority of my team. But I think you know, it speaks more broadly to a couple things that are interesting. I think, you know, when I, when I was an intern, when I was your age, you know, it was very different. Like I look at today's youth and, you know, the, the, how thoughtful they are, how big their thinking is, how passionate they are about their ideas. And it's, it's inspiring, quite honestly, because, you know, that's not what it was like when I was younger and I'm sure it will continue to get better. So it's genuine awe and curiosity in terms of like wanting to talk to all kinds of people around what they are learning, what they're passionate about. 
I also think, and I talk a little about this in, 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 in other areas, like, you know, as a, as you call it, as an executive, I think the biggest, one of the hardest traps to kind of avoid is not fooling yourself that you know everything because you're expected to know a lot of things and nobody knows everything. And I think having that ability to still be curious, still want to learn while still teaching is really important. Like I don't, you know, I've been to Africa a handful of times. I've never been to Trinidad. Like I'm so curious about so many things about it because you are the expert in that conversation and I don't need to pretend to be. And there's so many topics where I don't need to pretend to be an expert, but I can learn. And I think that I learned that a lot when I lived overseas, because when I lived and worked overseas, I wasn't expected to be an expert on Korean culture or Japanese culture. You know, I had to learn it. And I, I feel like that's something that a lot of executives have to be careful to not fall into that trap of just knowing everything because it's just not it's a, it's unreal. It's unrealistic. No, exactly. And I feel like something that I've sort of struggled with is being at a place where there's not much growth, growth, not only internally as, as an employee wanting to grow, but also growth as a company, not seeing risky change happening. And so mm-hmm. I think that's something that I really found amazing, just how much you could learn from them and really embrace, you know, their, their way of approaching things. So I also wanted to ask you, you know, with the uncertainty of everything with COVID, I know you've written a lot about that. You mentioned how the core storytelling principles simply don't change no matter how upside down everything else seems to be. So can you tell me how you have rebooted Google's marketing strategy given the state of this new normal? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's rebooted. I mean, I think that it's a great question. I think, you know, every, every marketing person in the world is kind of saying, like, how do we move forward? I think, you know, a number of years ago, we were lucky. We really took, you know, Google's a 21-year-old brand that people are very, most people around the world are very familiar with. And I think we, we embarked on a little exercise a couple of years ago to really think about what does Google mean to people? And we landed on, and what is our, not what is our mission, but kind of what is our, our purpose in some ways. And it really came back to this idea of being helpful. You know, like we will always organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. When you ask a normal person, it's just helpful. Like it helps you find where you're going. It helps you learn that thing you want to start. It helps you spell that word you don't know. It's just helpful. And I think that for two years or three years, we've been building on this idea of how do we become just the most helpful company in the world. And, you know, aligned to the pandemic, I think more than ever, people needed help. People, the need for information was more than ever the need to find accurate information on, you know, COVID stats or symptoms or nowadays like where vaccines are and rollout, that's becoming more and more daily life. And I think we're lucky enough to be in a place where our brand kind of values around helpfulness really fit into what everyone has done every day. And so that's the foundation. And now I think we're starting to go about this idea of like, how do we tell that story? You know, and I think all marketers are thinking like, do you have to be how empathetic because there's so many lives lost, there's so many people impacted. How funny can you be? Like how lighthearted? Like I remember when um, when Tinder came out with like their end of year ad, like it was refreshing, it was funny. And I'm sure people thought, there were a group of people who thought it was inappropriate, but I think a lot of people needed a laugh like that and to, be able to laugh at themselves in the year to try to close out the year. So I think every brand is gonna go about it different, but thinking about how do you use your voice as a brand to connect with people and inspire them? I think everyone's thinking through this, as are we. And, you know, we've, we're releasing some great work actually today around 
you know, support we're doing for black owned businesses. This has been, you know, a huge commitment from our company over the last year. And I think we want to continue on that. And we're super proud of that commitment. And we're super proud to see that work come out. And it's, it's a serious subject. And I think we really want to show our commitment on that. So it's called the four way it just launched today. It's, it's an exciting ad that's backed by a very large commitment to, you know, training, uh, underrepresented groups, partnerships with HBCUs. And I, saw, all I saw that. Yeah. You guys met with all like four, four to 10 or something of the HBCUs to talk about hiring and that sort of stuff. Exactly. Yeah. And I think it's more so, I think, you know, for us, you know, the ad, the ad is wonderful. The stories are wonderful, but, you know, I think from the, from the beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement, really looking at how inclusive and how diverse are our products and how do we, that's the biggest voice we have is our product. Like billions of people use our products. And so to be able to launch something that seems as simple as like searching for black owned businesses in your neighborhood or black owned restaurants or dry cleaners, to be able to do that in the U.S. On, at the scale of Google is just such a big step for helping those businesses, you know, connect to their community, you know, recover from, you know, the downturn and things like that. Exactly. And I think companies at, at the highest level need to realize it's not on the employees to make change happen. That's we're already trying to do our nine to five. So it's not on just the black employees. It's on all yeah. the employees. I think that's the thing you have to realize is what's new to you or somebody is not new to them. You know, like, I mean, this is these problems have been the same for many years and generations. And so, you know, I think we talk a lot about this idea of, you know, like, you know, a commitment to diversity and inclusion, lifting all boats. It's not, you know, obviously there's a large focus on the black community today, but, you know, the Latinx community, the Asian community, female led communities, like in theory, this greater empathy and, um, and kind of push is going to help everybody. And I think that's the state we all aspire to get to. And so now we're taking a little break and doing a rapid uh, question because that was a lot of serious information. That was, that was. <laughs> so now let's go to a little rapid fire question. We'll hop her through. So a couple of questions to get to know you better. Five questions in total. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. So I know you're a big foodie. You once said that you can't live without rice, which I agree. And your wife's kimchi is the best. So what's one meal that you could eat every week? Oh, we talk about this a lot. This is really hard. <laughs> I know I, could, I didn't know if I wanted to ask you this because I read this interview where you like you have so much experience with eating at amazing places across the world. I'm like, this is such a tough question to ask. I don't even know what interview that was when I'm talking about what food. I don't know. What, we actually were talking about it the other day. I don't know this is one meal, but noodles are a meal you can because it's very practical because you have everything from Italian to soup to fry to, you know, I don't know, anyway, you can prepare it in a lot of different ways. So noodles was kind of my answer when I was just talking about this with my wife and my kids like two days ago of like, what food could you eat forever? (laughs) That's a good one. Okay. So what's one COVID life hack that you use often? Mine would be, you know, not wearing proper pants or like (laughs) just wearing socks and a t-shirt. So what's one COVID life hack that you use? Uh, a COVID life hack that I use. I mean, I don't wear proper pants. I mean, definitely not, but I don't know what's a good COVID life hack. Um, I don't know if it's a life hack, but I mean, just the way lockdown is I've spent, 
an enormous amount of time exploring kind of local parks within San Francisco and really with my with my girls and with my family. And that's been really delightful side effect of COVID, like some of the most beautiful coastal side and wooded areas and random things in Golden Gate Park. So no, it's a life hack, but it's just how we get by, I think. Nice when you actually can go outside when you don't have to go into the office every day. I feel that. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> okay. If you could go back and relive one moment, what would it be? Like, like in my entire life? Yes. These are difficult ones. I know. These are getting crazy. I mean, besides like the standard, like my wedding and the birth of my children. children I, yeah. Over, like obviously in the forefront. I have to say like being at the World Cup in Germany with my wife in 2006 was just like, I, I very seldomly visited Germany. It was a magical experience. The people were wonderful. It was my first World Cup like to, that I ever been to. And I think that was just an experience that I got to share with her that I will kind of never forget, I guess. Maybe that's a good one. That's a good one. That's pretty epic. And I know, Laura, you said you went to the World Cup too. I mean, that's just not a normal thing. You guys are, I know. are living my dreams. Okay, so what's your morning routine? Nowadays, I get up like, you know, leisurely. I get up at like 7, 7.30. I make uh, breakfast for the girls before they go to school. They like pancakes with egg whites and a glass of warm milk. We chat. Um, I take their temperature for their, so they can check in before they go to school and I make myself a cup of coffee and then they're off to school and their mom brings them to school. And then I come down to my little hovel of a home office and start my day basically. Cool. And then last one is what's one weird fact about you that most people don't know? Oh, this is such a Google question. Like, name one weird fact about I know, you. but your thing is keep Marvin weird. So I'm like, I have to ask about a weird thing. <laughs> uh, a weird thing. My latest thing that someone reminded me of the other day, and it's kind of, it's almost like a weird thing and a challenge, which I don't really like, is I had a short stint on a U.S. network children's television show in like the late 90s, where I was on TV like Saturday mornings for like, 13 weeks in a row but it was like pre-youtube pre-internet so no one has ever seen it and i'd like to keep it that way in that, <laughs> that sense i hosted some i hosted some child segment on a show about the internet like in 1996 i want to say it was ridiculous that's pretty epic though i would want to find that if i was like laura i feel like you should do some digging and recover that <laughs> never, I, I feel like it's been bur- i don't even have a copy of it at this point it's so <laughs> together i will tell you the story of why it came about one day when we met. <laughs> okay so now let's get back into it um i know that you on angel invest so you're an advisor for startups like way up college fashionista gifs.com I'd love to know from you, what are the key themes you look for when investing in a business or an idea? It's a great question. I mean, like, I'm a horrible investor in the sense that, like, I love every idea. <laughs> like, it's like, I'm I just feel like I'd be the same way. It's tough. How do you decide? Like, there's so many good ideas. But the reality is, what I find is, so, I, there, you know, with the investing and the advising, the advising keeps me close to current trends and you know people and things like that. It's about the people. You know, like a lot of the people I advise for, 
either I've known them, you know, like um, Liz uh, at, at Way Up. I mean, she was a Googler, so I've known her for years. She's she's phenomenal, and it's really about supporting them. They, no matter what their idea is, it actually doesn't really matter. It's about supporting them as entrepreneurs and supporting them to get you know, kind of make something new in the world. And so, so many of the advisors that positions and investor positions I've taken has been based on the people. I would say recently I started investing in kind of more, I don't want to call them venture, but like uh, seed funds where I get to see a lot of ideas get pitched and then we vote on them. And that helps me understand like how other peers are thinking about different sectors and it helps me learn about new sectors. Like I've been doing a lot more with, in the medical industry because I don't know biotech or medical, I don't know that much about that. So that's one that I am getting interested in. And another one that I'm just joining, that I just joined now is really, you know, as a part of the Goldline Asian community, like they're, they're doing follow-on seed investments where at least one founder is Asian, which is just another way to kind of begin to further representation. You know, there's similar ones for female found, female found or black founded um, startups as well. And so it's partially to do your part for the community, partially to learn, partially for just people that you know. Okay, awesome. That's a great answer. When you start when you start a company in Trinidad, you come call me. Oh my god, yeah, I will. <laughs> I also feel like you just do so much on the side, but I guess it's things you do out of genuine passion and interest, so it's more fun. Is that correct yeah. to assume? It's more fun, and I think you know it makes me. I think I like to think it makes me a better marketer. I like to think it makes me a better leader because I have perspective. I think that's one of the things. When I moved to San Francisco, it was, it was, it was amazing being in Silicon It is and it was amazing being in Silicon Valley. It's such a unique place, but it's very, it's an industry town. It's all tech. And when I lived in Tokyo or Shanghai or New York, and I'm sure your experience is like this, like, you know, people in production or in fashion or in retail or in finance, and you get to connect the dots across all different perspectives. And here, the people are wonderful, but like it's very tech, it, especially pre-code, it's been very tech-focused. So I've had a very almost intentional kind of effort to try to connect outside of just pure tech. But, you know, that's, you know, everything is kind of tech nowadays. So going off of that, you've done so many interviews, you've written about so many things. Is there anything that you've wanted to talk about that no one's asked you? Is there anything that you're passionate about that you just want to speak about and just get out there right now? I mean, that's really dangerous. No, <laughs> I mean, I think that um, it's a great question. I mean, I think there was a level, you know, like, and I, I don't know if you read, like you read, you've read a lot of things I've written, but I think like a couple of years ago, like I had never talked about diversity and like being Asian and being an Asian leader, like ever up until like maybe two or two years ago. And so, you know, I think the timing of you know, kind of the broader diversity movement and then me kind of just recognizing and having daughters in my role and then other roles, like that's been like one of the most refreshing things that I'd never been able to talk about. Like no one had ever asked me what it was like to be Asian or what I thought about diversity and inclusion. So that's been kind of really refreshing. I think other things that I think continuing like you know, I still have really passionate around like where technology is going and like where, you know, human behavior is going. And it's not that we don't talk about those things yet, but I think, you know, there's definitely, you know, the, the relationship that people have with technology is evolving. And I think that it's totally normal. 
but I still think there's so much more positive impact technology can have on things that I'm, I'm really curious about that. And I want to learn and discuss those kinds of things at some point. That's a great answer. And you just learn so much about someone by asking them, what do they want to talk about? I feel like more interviews should be like that. And maybe that's something that I'll keep in my, when I interview people for more podcasts. So just yeah. to wrap up, I'd really love to know, I always ask this, this question, you know, you're a husband, you're a dad, what does success embody for you? Is success being great at your job? Is success being a father? What do you think success embodies for you? It's, it's a little bit of everything. I mean, I think, I mean, first and foremost, I think, you know, being like being a husband and a father, like, you know, my girls, my wife, like, you know, that's really important. Like raising strong children, strong girls is something that I'm very, very passionate about. I think, you know, you know, Kobe and the girl dad, like, you know, very proud of that. And so, and I think at the same time, you know, I'm in a position that for my girls to be successful and have a voice in the future, I have a role to play today in how I make my small corner of the world, you know, better for them, whether it's through, you know, you know, elevating, you know, gender representation or underrepresented groups or furthering diversity and inclusion or furthering the, the positive impact of technology to help the environment or something like that. I think the decisions we make today as, in my case, fathers and executives is the world that, you're, that your kids will grow up in. And so I see it as a, there's not all for them, but I see it as a dual role in that sense that, you know, the, the managers that my kids will have could be, you know, 20 year old interns that I have today. And if I can make a positive impact on that person's life so that they become a great manager, a great leader, that's going to serve my kids and other kids well in the future. So it is kind of, you know, it is that circle of life kind of concept that I think it, we all have to participate in. So there's no success, but it's all connected. So true. And I had one more, actually. I'd love to know what is one thing that you are most excited about for 2021? I mean, the Olympics would definitely be high on my list. Clearly, I like going to sporting events. Like going to the Olympics would be really, really big. But I think on the more practical side, I mean, I think, you know, with the vaccine rolling out globally, you know, with, you know, more and more candidates coming with the AstraZeneca one coming, which I think will be helpful for more global, for more populations around the world. Like it is, I'm really curious to see how that goes, how it impacts how people live, how we can live every day. And like, almost like coming out of the pandemic, what does society start to look like? How do we treat each other? You know, I think that's kind of like a, an anthropological view of the world that I'm kind of curious about. I'm curious about that too. It's, it's going to be interesting to see how things are because they'll never be a normal anymore. Well, that's it for all my questions. Thank you so much for coming on. That's, it, was, it was a pleasure. It was super fun. And it was, it was wonderful chatting. It was super fun. You're very good at this. So. <laughs> Thank you. Well, Visionaries, thank you so much for listening to another episode. I'd like to thank Marvin again for coming on. This was one of the highlights of my career so far, being able to share a space with someone who carries such profound impact and power. I've learned so much from Marvin on his way of treating others and also working on harnessing technology in unprecedented ways. And I hope you too are able to take away some great notes. 
If you'd like to support this podcast monthly, you can go to the anchor.fm link in the description and click support. You can also follow me on Instagram at rwalcottxx. Be sure to listen to all our previous episodes and stay tuned for more amazing content. See you next time.